Welcome to episode 10 of The History Files. We're recording this on April 20th, 2015 which just so happens to be the day after the 240th anniversary of Lexington and Concord Day, the day in which American patriots of the militia thwarted uh, British regulars from their attempt to confiscate colonial arms and ammunition from, uh, from their storehouse in Concord, Massachusetts. It's an absolute milestone in American history, and one that should be widely celebrated for exactly what it is, which eh, we'll have to come back to one of these days for a future episode of The History Files. Today, however, we're going to cover some of the aspects of the Russian Civil War between 1917 and 1920, and the Allied uh, interventions. The reason I want to do that is I know, I know I've been talking a little bit too much about Ukraine these days, but it's a very topical topic uh, subject matter because um, there's a lot there. Americans have a tendency to ignore stuff that, well, we just don't want to think about because it has nothing to do with Kim Kardashian. But we need to know a lot of the things that surround Ukraine and its past in order to know where we stand right now. Let's uh, discuss a little bit about Ukraine, Russia, and NATO, or North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Right now we have a government in Kiev, which was put there as the result of a coup d'etat last year. Uh, in the process, they threw out the elected government of one... Uh, Yana <laughs> I'm going to stumble over this name. Uh, Yanukovych, or Yanukovych, I don't know exactly how to pronounce that. Uh, we'll say Yanukovych. Uh, to be replaced by the U.S. State Department's handpicked successor, Poroshenko. Okay. With the move towards placing NATO troops in Ukraine right now to counter the Eastern Ukraine separatists who wish to join their Russian cousins rather than uh, re remain within the Ukraine, uh, there are issues. The separatists are in turn supported by the Russians. Uh, under Vladimir Putin. Uh, to what extent is very, very unclear, however. Their claims of Russian troops, Russian armor, Russian artillery uh, that have not been, as far as I know, substantiated, but there's certainly lots of discussion about that. Whatever the result is, whatever it is, it's clear that the Russians are very nervous about having NATO troops on their southern border especially in Ukraine, home of Russian civilization. The North Atlantic Treaty Organization was originally formed to combat Russia, to combat the Soviet Union. And as the Russian Empire collapsed 
in the 1990s, NATO expanded, including to include Poland and Hungary and the Baltic states, all countries that had been part of the Soviet bloc. This makes the Soviets, pardon me, the Russians very, very nervous. We, the West, uh, seem to be in this for the money and the power and that control of Ukraine would give us. I mean, they are the breadbasket of Europe in many ways. Well, for the Russians, it's both an attack upon their ancient culture and a direct threat to their very existence. Considering that, as the Russians themselves have bragged, they're the only country in the world capable of obliterating the United States, I call backing the Russian bear into a corner a very poor policy choice. This is Hollywood. Sporting cast of thousands. What else came of my trip to the library? Romance, education, entertainment. For our media section, I'd like to recommend the book a Light Cavalry Action by John Harris. It was published in 1967, and it's actually a novel about, of all things, a libel action in England in 1939, which in turn concerns a cavalry action in Ukraine in late 1919, with a mixed force of British and white Russian cavalry, fighting the Red Army of Marshal Budinyi. That's sort of complex, but it's a... Very well done little novel uh, that I'd never even heard of till my friend Steve handed me a copy and said, oh, I ran across this some years ago. You'll like it. I never heard of the author, but it's, again, it's, it's very well done. And the discussion, the, the focal point of this supposed libel case goes into court is something that, again, not many people have any idea about. Um, a cavalry action in 1919. What's unusual about it is, who knew? <laughs> cavalry actions, well, I knew there were cavalry actions after 1914, but not many people do. It was assumed, oh, well, the machine gun changed all that. Well, it does in the book, too. In some ways, it's sort of showing how dated horse cavalry was by 1919. But more importantly than that, as far as what we're talking about today, is it shows the complexity of the situation in the former Russian Empire um, as it collapsed into civil war and chaos in between 1917 and 1922. The, uh, there were mixed bags of, uh, of troops involved. The Russian Bolsheviks were becoming organized and becoming actually very good at what they were doing. The Western allies, especially in this case the British, were trying very hard to stabilize the area. Um, sending their troops in as advisors with very specific rules of engagement. In other words, don't. <laughs> You're not there to fight. You're there to, uh, to advise and help the white Russian forces, the anti-Bolshevik forces. 
and what a complete fiasco the whole thing was. It was a fiasco from day one. It's a very well-written novel, again, and uh, definitely worth your read, if you can find it. <laughs> it's not too easy to find, but it's a good read. As far as films go, I'd like to recommend first The Light Horseman. It's an Australian film from 1987. Uh, it's marvelous. It concerns the proper use of cavalry in Palestine by Australian and Australian-New Zealand troops under the command of General Allenby. Um, they were in use against the Turks uh, and their German advisors, and the, it shows exactly how cavalry could be employed in the latter stages of, 19, of World War One, and just how, how important cavalry was in places like that. Cavalry charges may have been a thing of the past against... German emplacements, or even English emplacements, in France, and it was a close-run thing trying them even in Eastern Europe and the Eastern Front, but as far as wild and woolly places like Palestine and Arabia, um, they still had lots and lots of usefulness. In fact, one of the things that is pointed out in the film is they do a cavalry charge using bayonets instead of sabers. Uh, and it's very successful. After that, which isn't mentioned in the film, the British High Command converted at least one company in each uh, unit to be armed with sabers so that they could do a cavalry charge, echoing exactly what the Confederacy had done in 1864-65 by making sure that of all their cavalry units armed with pistol and carbine, at least one company in every squadron was armed also with the saber. The reason I'm mentioning this is the very term light horsemen denoted more dragoons, or light cavalry, which was expected to dismount before they came into combat and um, use their rifles. They were armed with rifles and bayonets, and they were supposed to be used by a. They were supposed to be employed in riding to the battle, dismounting, fighting on foot. In the battle for Beersheba, instead, they didn't have time for that. But the Turks and the Germans knew that every other attack before that, the. Australian and British horse had dismounted at a certain point and in order to come and fight on foot and that's where they had all their machine guns sighted to and their artillery but these Australians didn't have time for that so they just came charging on through and the artillery and machine guns couldn't be lowered fast enough to uh, to get them to to hit them so definitely getting inside what is called the um, the the intelligence loop, <laughs> if you will, uh, the AAOD loop. Oops, I'm sorry, misspoke. OODA loop. At any rate, it was a classical cavalry charge in <laughs> using troops who were not ever trained that way and using their bayonets as sabers. Fascinating 
just it's it's a wonderful story. Secondly, let me recommend also Dr. Zhivago from 1965. Uh, it's a sweeping epic, as they say, of the Russian Civil War. Again, there's some marvelous cavalry actions shown uh, against some really stupid <laughs> things. It's it's it, in a lot of ways it's a disturbing film to watch. Um, it's very Russian, you know. Our misery is ours. Uh, so it's Russian. What can you say? But if you can get through all the other stuff that's in it, there's some really really cool cavalry actions involved in that. Uh, so I highly recommend at least picking through the film to get to the good parts. I also want to make a brief mention of a YouTube channel that I was just recommended. Uh, it's called The Great War, and it's a week-by-week -week synopsis of what was happening 100 years ago in The Great War, World War One. Very, very well done. I'm very impressed with these guys. I have no connection whatsoever with them. Uh, but I recommend you go watch because it's just really well done. They're only about 10-minute segments, so it's not going to take much of your time. So check them out. We're only 38 weeks in as of this recording. A mere 38 weeks. It, there's plenty more. History lives again. So for our main topic today, I want to talk about foreign intervention in the Russian Civil War. One thing to keep in mind about this Russian Civil War from 1917 to 1920, 21 or thereabouts, was it was more destructive, there were more deaths caused by the Russian Civil War, and especially by the Bolsheviks after that, uh, than World War One, concerning Russia. And Russia lost plenty of men in World War One. There's no question about that. It's just that the Civil War was that much more destructive. It was an extraordinarily traumatic time for the Russian population. And then when you add on World War Two to it, they've got some pretty solid institutional memories of bad things happening between 1914 and 1945. Um, with World War I came the collapse of the Romanov Empire, which had lasted from 1682 until, well, 1917, due to the pressures of World War I. The Russians originally had been one of the key players in pushing for World War I. The Austrians have to take a lot of blame, but the Russians... I believe, need to take a certain amount of blame, too. They were very desirous, and had been for a long time, uh, to dismember the Ottoman Empire because they wanted access to the Dardanelles. They wanted access from the Black Sea into the Mediterranean, and Turkey then, and is now, controls uh, the, the Dardanelles. They control that waterway between the Black Sea, and the Mediterranean, and the Russians have had their eyes on it for mm, centuries. Um, Alexander Kerensky, who was a leader of the Russian Duma 
effectively their parliament, uh, put together a socialist government in 1917, in the spring of 1917, to govern Russia with the collapse of the Romanovs, of their empire and their government. Uh, but they made a, an incredible mistake in feeling that there were no enemies to the left. All the enemies that they feared were right-wing monarchist supporters. They had no idea their naivety was complete in not fearing enemies to the left, specifically the Bolsheviks. He continued the war against Germany, mostly because that was a way to ensure Western funds would be would continue flowing into Russia. Uh, he was astute enough to realize that the Russian economy was going to collapse without Western funding, specifically a lot of it from American banks. We weren't even involved in the war quite yet. Uh, we got involved in um, April of 1917, but we'd already been loaning money to the Russians. The British banks, of course, had already been loaning money, and French as well. A lot of money had gone into Russia, and plus Russia was an absolute necessity as far as the Western allies were concerned with keeping half the German army occupied. So there was a lot of pressure on Kerensky to continue the war effort. And there was a lot of pressure on the Germans to make sure he didn't. And so that's why they put together this sealed train that contained um, very much like a It's very much like uh, an infectious disease of uh, Vladimir Lenin. They took him from Switzerland to Finland. Finland was in the process of, of uh, clawing itself away from the Russian Empire in their own civil war. Uh, the Russians, de pardon me, the Germans deposited him there and he went to St. Petersburg via Finland station and effectively that's when he got the bolshevik revolution going november 1917 the uh, the bolsheviks staged their revolution it's called the october revolution because the russians were still on the old calendar they hadn't yet upgraded which let's see the catholics had upgraded in the 16th century it took the protestants till somewhere in the 18th century to upgrade their calendar and the russians still hadn't done it by 1917 so they were still two weeks behind on the calendar thus the october revolution took place in november that little bit of tid a uh, little tidbit of history there for you at any rate the october revolution in november uh, overthrew Kerensky's government. And actually, it's kind of cool. Kerensky ended up being a professor of Russian history at Stanford University. And he was still there even when I was in college. I thought, oh, that'd be so cool to take a course from Alexander Kerensky on the Russian Revolution. Ah, but I didn't get a chance to go wander over to Stanford to do that, which is one of my everlasting regrets. Oh, well. At any rate, with the overthrow of Kerensky, this intensified the Russian Civil War, which eh, had sort of been in its nascent uh, days under Kerensky, but it really got going with the Bolsheviks. 
Um, I could go into eh, a whole lot of really bizarre, obscure detail as the difference between Bolsheviks and Mensheviks and all this kind of thing, but I'm not going to do that. We'll just call there was the White Russians who were effectively monarchists or whatever, and there were the Reds, the Red Army, who were Bolsheviks. With the collapse of the Romanovs, though, the Allies decided they needed to intervene to some degree in Russia. And the first expeditionary force to Russia was British, and they went to Archangel, which is way up on the White Sea, just east of um, Scandinavia. And it, it just like in World War II, that's how the Western Allies supplied Russia, was by going north of Norway and Finland and all that. And uh, World War II, they went to Murmansk, but World War I went to Archangel. So a British expeditionary force was sent there to protect the military stores that had been sent there in the form of rifles, machine guns, ammunition, uh, food, clothing, anything you can imagine that an army would need. What I think is kind of interesting is that a lot of that stuff was actually of American manufacture. During World War I, the Russians, although they had a burgeoning economy, something that nobody really pays much attention to, the Russians had like the fourth largest economy in Europe um, in 1914, and they were no, not nearly as backward as people want to believe. Nevertheless, they're in industrial capability wasn't up to snuff to make enough rifles for every guy in the Russian army because <laughs> it was going to be like, you know, 4 million or 10 million or whatever. There's a lot of them. So they let contracts with American arms manufacturers and some that weren't like Westinghouse, for example, Westinghouse made hundreds of thousands of Mosin Nagant rifles for the Russian government. Now, not all of them got delivered, the United States Army ended up having to buy a bunch of them um, because the contracts were, of course, canceled with the Bolsheviks coming in. But nevertheless, uh, there were major quantities of arms made by Westinghouse, by Remington, who was also making arms for both Britain and France. Uh, there were uh, Winchester, of course, Colt. Uh, pretty much all the big manu big name firearms manufacturers in New England had been contracted by the Russian government to make arms for them. And most of those ended up being shipped to Archangel, and therefore British and later American troops, and Canadians as well, were sent in to defend that stuff. The result, another result of the collapse of the Romanov and Empire, and then eventually the collapse of the uh, Kerensky government was the fact that the German army no longer had a serious enemy to uh, to fight. the 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 Germans had they had won a lot of battles in the Eastern Front. The Austrians may not have. The Austrians consistently got their butts kicked by the Russians, but the Germans, on the other hand, were well. As one German officer said about the Austrians, "We're chained to a dead man." 
the Germans were far, far better troops than the Austrians. Or at least, let me rephrase that. The Germans had much better tactics and officers than the, than the Austrians did. Germany was a rising empire. Austria was a collapsing empire. The Russians were sick and tired of being beaten. They were sick and tired of the war. And so, as Lenin pointed out, they were, the soldiers were voting with their feet. And they were just deserting in droves. Uh, there's no reason for them to stay there and be, be miserable or be shot by their officers or shot by the other side. They just went home. Uh, and so the Germans, first off, made some massive incursions into Russia. And then they ended up being able to send most of their troops back to the Western Front, where for a short time, in early 1918, the Germans actually had, for the first time, a marked superiority in manpower against the British and the French. And it wasn't until the Americans started coming in in large numbers that they managed to counter that. At any rate, it definitely was something that the Western allies had to deal with was these, all these military stores that they'd sent to Russia. Uh, they were afraid they would fall into the hands of either the Germans or the Reds. They were, you know, as far as the, as far as the British and French governments were concerned, there wasn't a lot of difference. <laughs> Neither one was particularly friendly. Um, another aspect of the collapse of, of the Russians was Ukrainian independence movements started up again. The Ukrainians have long suffered under Russian domination. It's sort of a weird situation. Russia loves Ukraine. Ukrainians do not love Russia. <laughs> Kiev is the birthplace of Russian civilization, so Russia loves it. But Ukrainians they don't love the attention, <laughs> shall we say. So one of the first things these Ukrainians did was with the uh, Brest-Litovsk uh, treaty between Russia and, or between the Bolsheviks and the Germans in early 19, was it late 1917, early 1918, um, was the, the Ukrainians making noises about allying with Germany. And this is one of those little bitty details in history that had the Germans had a little bit more time than, you know, in dealing with the, uh, getting a, a true alliance together with Ukraine, freeing it from Russian domination, the food supply, which Ukraine could deliver to Germany would have basically completely changed the dynamic and the British blockade against Germany would have become effectively ineffective. Uh, unfortunately for Germany, Bulgaria collapsed before the consummation of this, but had that gone through, had Bulgaria Austria and Germany managed to hang on for another few months, even six months, there probably would have been a very, very different ending to World War I. So by 1918, the Allied 
governments, specifically Britain and France, but also to some degree the United States, um, sent troops to Ukraine to lead uh, training and give expertise to white Russian forces that were in Ukraine. Um, Again, with Germany was collapsing or had collapsed, British are going in to try to to uh, prevent the Bolsheviks from taking over the entire Ukraine. Uh, you've already got an expeditionary force in Archangel, which is almost due north, but <laughs> several thousand miles from uh, from uh, um, Sevastopol in Crimea. And um, it's it's getting very very messy at this point by 1918, late 1918. Um, as I mentioned, an archangel. You by mid to late 1918, you have British, American, and Canadian troops uh, there, uh, ostensibly to protect this war material. But they take it pretty liberally as to what their job is. And as the Russians, the Bolsheviks, attack them, um, it's British and American infantry and Canadian artillery. Remember some years ago, uh, I was traveling in Canada when there was the coup in Russia. And uh, as always, had car trouble. And so I'm hitchhiking and I get a... Uh, picked up by a Canadian road crew, and they take me into Radium Hot Springs to get a new part for my truck, and they're laughing about this and how, well, you Americans are in trouble here because, you know, there's this coup in Russia, and I said, they remember that you guys invaded them too. <laughs> Every Russian schoolchild knows that American, British, Canadian, and French, and Japanese troops invaded Russia at the end of the war, World War I. We don't know anything about it. They know all about it. Russian artillery, pardon me, Canadian artillery slaughtered a whole lot more Russians than American rifles did. Let me guarantee you. At any rate, so we've got British and Archangel. We've got, or British, American, Canadian troops and Archangel. We have British and some French forces in uh coming into Ukraine. We also have in Vladivostok, the, the Russian Far East, we have American, Canadian, and Japanese troops. In Vladivostok, on the far eastern edge of Russia, we also have American, Canadian, and Japanese troops hold the city and the eastern end of the Trans-Siberian Railroad, partially for the Czech Legion. Now, I mentioned the Czech Legion in an earlier podcast. Uh, this were, these guys were Czech, uh, na- I won't say nationals, because there was, wasn't a Czechoslovakia yet. They were ethnic Czechs who had been drafted by the Austrians, captured by the Russians, put together in this Czech Legion by the Russians in order to fight the Austrians. When Russia collapsed, they were left standing there holding the bag, and they said, well, we'll go home by way of Vladivostok in the United States. So they were going to go on this round-the-world trip, which they ended up doing. But in the process, they were engaged by 
the Western Allies, to hold the Trans-Siberian Railroad. Well, that didn't really work out so well, but they did have to get across Siberia on the railroad. They had these really cool armored trains that they were running. And the one thing that Americans and Canadians probably understand to some degree, at least Westerners understand to some degree, but not a lot of Europeans, is how bloody big that is, that how big Russia is. And in the United States, you could get on a train and go for days and days and days on a train to get across the country. Well, in Russia, you do that for weeks. Uh, it's, it's a long ways. And so these, the, the Trans-Siberian Railroad became a focal point for a lot of fighting. And it was the Czechs who were a major part of that. But the Japanese as well, the Japanese were thinking about cutting a, a chunk of Russia, uh, specifically uh, southern Siberia, out for their own soon-to-be-called uh, Greater East Asia Co-Prosperity co Sphere. And so the Japanese, although they were officially supposed to be kept to 10,000 troops, uh, according to American sources, they landed a whole lot more guys than that in areas not outside of Vladivostok. So there were a lot of Japanese troops, and sections of the Trans-Siberian Railroad would be uh, would be give, um, given the authority under Japanese or the Canadians or the uh, even the British. Canadians. Uh, it was an international mess, but it was also it's something that the Russians remember very, very well. Uh, as a little interesting note, the 27th Infantry of the United States Army has their nickname of being the Wolfhounds, and this is where they got it. 27th Infantry and the 31st Infantry were both sent to Vladivostok, and uh, they engaged in Russian bandits and Red Army troops and just about you name it, and they darn near came to a shooting war with the Japanese at the time as well. Um, but the 27th Infantry has this unique nickname of the Wolfhounds, and they got it from being Vladivostok. Another nice little, well, I don't know if it's nice, interesting little tidbit is that the policing of the city of Vladivostok was done by Canadian Mounties. Eventually, as the white forces, uh, who were never very professional under the best of circumstances, collapsed uh, and turned, either they deserted to the red forces or they just turned into bandits, a lot of them... Uh, in most of history, the definition be, uh, between and the distinction between soldier and bandit has never been very distinct. It's only in the last, you know, 150 years or so, 200 years at most, that soldiers have had, enlisted soldiers have had much uh, high-ranking opinion uh, among civilians. Uh, but anyway, as the white forces collapsed, Czechs moved east and eventually got to Vladivostok and were transported across 
and American and Japanese ships to the United States, where they continued their journey around the world to get back to Czech, the Czechoslovakia. Allied troops eventually were withdrawn as well from Archangel after having, well, gotten to slaughter a fair number of red soldiers uh, with their supplies, and they did manage to prevent the Reds from getting most of those. British forces in Ukraine were hurriedly withdrawn uh, at the uh, end of 1919, and uh, they left hundreds of thousands of these white Russian soldiers behind. They would take some of the officers and their wives and whatnot, but because most of them were old aristocratic families who everybody knew were going to get shot in the back of the head at best uh, by the Reds. But they just left the Russian troops that supported them behind, uh, who, of course, immediately descended into banditry. There was a huge typhus epidemic going on. Um, it was an absolute mess, which made Gallipoli... 1915, uh, which in and of itself was a horrid mess. It made that look like a cakewalk by comparison. The the Russian Civil War and the international interventions in it seems to have just made things worse. It didn't seem to help the the white Russian troops fight any better. Uh, it just sort of pro prolonged the agony and. It wasn't for another year or so, it was in late 1920 or 1921, that the Bolsheviks, through efficiency under Trotsky, I mean, Trotsky was the guy who turned the, the Red Army into a serious fighting force, but um, Trotsky uh, managed to really wring out some amazing victories from his, from his troops, uh, and they clamped down, they they actually reorganized Russia and started their whole Bolshevik or communist Soviet Union, um, which, for all its horrors of the early days, you got to say, well, it got worse under Stalin. And Stalin, well, he was... <laughs> Figure all all politicians are sociopaths to some degree. He was not only a sociopath, he was a complete psychopath. And millions of people uh, are on his butcher's bill. At any rate, the point of all this, why are the Russians so concerned about foreign intervention in Ukraine? It's because they have a long, long memory. They remember exactly what happened between 1917 and 1920. They know exactly what was going on in Archangel, what was going on in Ukraine, what was going on in Vladivostok. The West is completely ignorant of this. And we have no idea of the hornet's nest we're kicking. Looks like a football. Well, it's not. When you start backing the bear into a corner, he starts growling and baring his teeth and sharpening his claws. It's a really, really, really dumb idea. And when they brag about being the only country in the world that can completely annihilate the United States, uh, come on, guys, let's take that seriously. They don't 
the Russians don't make threats idly. So, anyway, so that's it for today's podcast. And uh, I urge you to listen to some of our earlier ones if you get a chance. Keep tuning in in the future. And next week we'll have episode 11 of The History Files. Until then, I'm Gordon Fry, and listen in. Thanks. The History Files is brought to you by Bad Cat Productions, a proud member of the Psycon Podcast Network. For more episodes, show notes, links, or to leave comments and suggestions, visit us at psycon.net slash THF. That's C-S-I-C-O-N slash THF. We also invite you to please consider supporting this and our other fine shows by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash psycon or patreon.com slash badcatshows, where a pledge of even $1 a month will help keep us on the air. Bad Cat. Meow. Jeff Skunk Baxter. Ever heard of him? Uh-uh. He was a guitarist for Doobie Brothers and Steely Dan. He's a defense analyst. So okay. got the long hair and big mustache. But he uh, discovered, while doing a bunch of research on in the early 90s, while it was there was the move from analog to digital recording stuff, he kept finding all this cool stuff in Department of Defense papers and whatnot. And he just started learning all this, these things. And he just, on a hell, for the hell of it, wrote a paper on how to convert Aegis destroyers and con- cruisers from just carrier defense to, you know, general missile defense. And he handed it to Dana Rohrbacher, who we guess he knew was a L.A. congressman. I thought, well, this is good. And he passed it on to some other people. And he got a call from some general saying, uh, hey, would you like to come talk with us about this? <laughs> and so he's been hired and he does defense. <laughs> he's a defense analyst. So when did this happen? Uh, since the 90s, you know, mid-90s he's been doing this. And he's like, he still plays. He said his first job for the defense department was the, the general in charge of like procurement for missile stuff sent him to Boeing and to Lockheed to ask questions. And he, he said, these guys are masters at snowballing, uh, snowing majors and stuff. And they know how to deal with all these other different Pentagon types, but they had no idea how to deal with a rock guitarist. So they couldn't lie because... They had no idea how to lie properly, so it would sound good. Uh, I found it on uh, Western Rifle Shooters thing, but it's a it's a video. I can send it to you about an hour. Actually, I was thinking of maybe talking about that at some point too.